0: Okay, so we're going to be in Judges 13. We'll just be picking up where we left off in Judges before we took our brief excursus into Haggai. And just going to be reading all of chapter 13 of Judges. I'm just going to read starting there in verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren, and you have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. You shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us, and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And the God, and God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know what, that, the angel of, that, the angel, that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord and to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when a flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell to their faces on the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew grew. And the Lord blessed him, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahath Dan between Zora and Eshetal. So picking up right where we left off in judges, I think it's probably fair to um, briefly summarize where we've been in the book so far. Um, the working title, by the way, of this section, is "God creates a Savior." And uh, something that becomes clear um, in Judges is we've seen so far kind of the pattern of the book, which is the people in apostasy, the Lord raising up a Deliverer, that Deliverer saving them, and then the people kind of returning back towards their apostasy. That's kind of a general pattern. Uh, That pattern slowly degrades over time, and you'll notice that uh, at a certain point, the people stop uh, repenting, and they stop crying out for God. They start just kind of existing in their suffering, and then God saves them anyway, Um, And that's certainly true by the time we get to Samson. Uh, And something else that's worth noting, at least in terms of authorship and structure of this book, Samson is the last of the judges that gets talked about in the book of Judges. So, so far, depending on how you divide it up, there could be 12 or 13 total judges in the book of Judges. Um, It really depends on whether you consider Abimelech a judge or not, um, depending if you think he meets those qualifications. Uh, But everyone would agree that Samson, uh, is the last judge mentioned. He's also one of what's considered the major judges, which means he gets a lot of section of text. He doesn't just get a short little snapshot of his life. Um, and next to Gideon, he's really the longest judge that's talked about in the book. And that shouldn't surprise us because when you think about the book of judges, there's usually two people who come to mind. It's Gideon and Samson. And maybe for many of us, Deborah, right? because it's so rare for a, a woman judge to be you know talked about in the ju- in the Bible uh, as she is. And so aside from those three dominant names, really, all the other judges might have been new to us or a fresh reminder, you know, when you read your Bible, or you read through judges. But Samson kind of stands out in that way. And something that might perplex you about Samson is if you know his story, you know that it goes south very quickly and it gets messy very quickly. And there's a lot of unanswered questions in the book. Like, why, if God creates Samson, why if he births Samson from a barren womb, uh, is Samson so messed up, you know? Uh, Why is Samson so askew of the plan that God sets before him? How does Samson end up where he ends up? How is he really like a good savior judge for the people? And all of those questions are things we're going to get to in time. But at least structurally, it's important to note that uh, in the division of the book, we're at the last major judge. So after Samson's story, there's some like concluding remarks about the state of Israel in general. There's more narrative there, but there's no more judges being discussed. This cycle is kind of effectually terminated at samson so you've like the introduction we're kind of right at the tail end of the body of the text (coughs) we've been introduced to the last judge and then we'll get kind of the conclusion summarizing remarks Um, and uh, as always when we're trying to understand what is the purpose of the author what's the authorial intent to us as readers what is the authorial intent to his his audience um, we have to ask the question why does the author include the thing that he includes what is the what is the Uh, theme or idea or uh, message he's trying to send to any reader of this material. And one of the things you can surmise, uh, or one of the ways you can understand what he's trying to get at is by paying close attention to the structure of the text, how he arranges material, how they kind of put things together, why they spend certain time on certain judges and why they spend less time on other judges. Um, So because Samson gets so much time, it's very important for the message of the book of Judges that we understand why he's there what purpose he is serving. And uh, the author employs a bunch of strategies to do this, um, and and we'll we'll take a look at those as we get there. So uh, if you look with me again in verse 1, and I'll read verse 1 and 2 together, um, we'll see the state of Israel. And so the last thing we got is a list of judges, and then it says, And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so God gives them into the hands of the Philistines. He does this for 40 years. And there's nothing at the termination of that. God gives them into the hand of the Philistines. No, no response, nothing from the Israelites, not a peep, no repentance, no crying out to God, no asking for salvation. And then you'll notice that apart from their request for salvation, you have the introduction to the man Manoah, whose wife has no children, who are, and these two are given this prophecy of Samson. And so what's interesting about that is it's broken a pattern that was introduced earlier to us in the book, and it has slowly been degrading which is the pattern of um, apostasy, repentance, even if it's a true repentance or not, right? We've kind of discussed that already. But apostasy, let's say a crying out to God for saving, whether it's repentance or saving from their circumstance. Um, God raises up a judge, saves them, a period of peace, re- rinse and repeat. And, that, and earlier we saw that uh, they kind of stopped asking for repentance and God begins to save them out of his own, uh, his own will, his own choices. And then uh, we saw that the, the period of peace begins to be removed as well. You, know, you notice that in the last couple of Judges, uh, there's no mention of a period of abiding peace in Israel as the judge rules and reigns. And uh, now uh, we find the people of Israel again uh, apostatizing, going away from the Lord. The Lord gives them now into the hands of the Philistines. And, uh, and that's it. No cry for repentance. You, ha- you are met with Israelites who almost begin to expect bondage and captivity as a normative pattern. And this would be a shock to us if we took chapter 13 and we put it right next to chapter two in the book of Judges, uh, because in chapter two, you know, we're kind of expecting still that the Israelites are going to be obedient to the command, conquest the promised land, that they're not going to tolerate being enslaved to the people of the land because they've been commissioned to go out and subdue and cultivate this land. And so uh, if we put chapter 13 right next to chapter two, we would see that sharp contrast, but almost like a gradient over time for you know, a myriad of chapters, we've seen this erosion of the people up, giving up their command, giving up their dominion, and being enslaved, and now to the point where uh, you read that the people are enslaved to the Philistines, they don't even cry out for help anymore, they're just kind of okay with their situation. And that shouldn't surprise us because, you know, when we meet the Israelites in the time of Moses, enslaved to the Egyptians, they're kind of accepted of their lot. You know, they're, they're saying, you know, it's not a good life, you know, but it's an honest life. I'm, I'm happy with where I'm at, um, and Moses, don't stir up trouble for us because we're, you know, we're okay here in, under uh, Egyptian slavery. And we kind of see the people of Israel back into this position of bondage and slavery from an oppressing people group. And despite that absence of repentance, you notice that God moves and raises up a judge for the people, um, and he doesn't do so out of any of the existing uh, people that are alive, as it were, in this time. And that's something another pattern break that you'll see in this account in Judges. Um, Previously in the Judges, we've we've been introduced to a judge that's alive and that God meets the judge face-to-face, tells them to save the people. That judge who's living goes and rescues the people and peace is restored. This is the first time in the book of Judges we meet a judge before the judge is even around. This is the first time we're introduced to the parents of a judge who will then have the judge and they haven't even had him yet. In fact, they're barren. They don't have any children right now. And it's in that situation that another pattern break has occurred to cue us into something important that we should pay attention to. Uh, it's, it's interesting, the, um, the motif of uh, barren women in Scripture is a motif that's worth paying attention to. and um, it's, it's something that, it, you know, if you were to look through the pages of the text, an earlier author like Moses, when he's writing the Torah, introduces us to this idea that the women in the line of promise, in the lineage of the promised seed of God tend to struggle with barrenness, almost all of them. You have Sarah who struggles with barrenness until finally she has Isaac. You have Isaac's wife, who's Rebecca, who struggles with barrenness until she has Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob's wife, uh, not Leah, but Rachel, struggles with bar- barrenness until she has Joseph. So long periods of time of barrenness following into that lineage of the promised child who is to come, the promised seed. And that barrenness motif, the author of Judges would have had access to so he's cueing us into something that we ought to pay attention to as well which is all the other judges that we've seen so far there's been no mention of their heritage their parents if their if their mother was barren or not but in the case of Samson you have this cueing into this woman uh, she's she's barren before this point in time and that's important i don't want i want you to keep that idea in your mind because we're going to talk about that again uh, at the end of this chapter when we ask the question why is this whole section included So you see that the angel shows up uh, to her and he says, behold, you are barren, you have not born children. And this is in verse three, but you shall conceive and bear a son. And that's uh, that promise, that promise to bear a son uh, is God uh, not taking a judge out of the existing populace, but literally from nothing, from, from no person existing, from a barren womb, creating a judge who's going to save the people. And that's another pattern break in the book of Judges, another new kind of judge is raised up, a kind of anticipation for who this judge is going to be. This judge is going to be raised up from a barren womb, and he is prophesied over, and in verse 5, we, we see that his life uh, is to be a Nazarene who set apart for, for God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And this, uh, this takes place uh, kind of now back into the normal pattern of the book of Judges, where you have a judge who's told that they're going to rescue the people um, and they're going to deliver the people from the hand of that oppressing group, uh, hopefully lead them back towards faithfulness, uh, towards God. Um, and so in this case, you have the angel prophesying to the woman and telling her what it is to be. And, uh, and then the woman, uh, you know, she's not there with her husband. He's just appeared to her randomly. He disappears. Um, and then she runs in verse 6 and she goes to her husband and she tells him, uh, exactly the same thing that the angel told her and if you want to compare notes on those two accounts you can but she tells, she tells her husband the same thing that the angel told her uh, that this son is going to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines uh, he's to be a Nazarite for God then Manoah who's met with this kind of strange prophecy uh, prays to the Lord and he, he cries out and he says oh Lord please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with a child and God doesn't need to listen to Manoah. Uh, he's already given uh, Manoah's wife, who, by the way, whose name is never mentioned uh, in this text. Uh, she's already been given the instructions. Uh, she's told Manoah the instructions. And, so, and, and then Manoah prays. It's not an irrational prayer, right, to ask for further clarification on what's to come. You know, if your wife's barren and uh, Israel's oppressed, it's, it's big news that your barren wife is going to bear the child that's going to deliver the people of Israel. That's, that's kind of a shocker. And so Manoah prays and says, uh, Lord, uh, please send this man again and give us instructions on what he is to do. And notice in verse 9, God listens to the voice of Manoah, and the angel comes again to the woman as she sat in the field, but Manoah is not with her again. And then the woman runs and grabs Manoah and and pulls him in, and then they all sit down together and and talk about what's this child going to be like. But it's interesting to note, uh, even in Israel's apostasy, even in their enslavement, as it were, to the Philistines for 40 years, God's still listening to personal prayers from his people. He's still paying attention. And more than that, he's, he's actually sensitive and responsive to these prayers. Now, that's significant for a whole host of reasons, but it, it's, it's never a, a thing that we should skip over in Scripture when God responds to a prayer, listens to a prayer, and that's, that's explicitly mentioned in the text of Scripture. Um, I think when we think about God, And his response to us in prayer is almost like an assumed thing as Christians. You know, we grow up familiar with it, almost maybe indignant that God doesn't respond in the way we think he should respond. And we don't uh, really think about how significant it is that the God of all the universe listens very carefully to his rather rebellious and fickle children and gives them the time of day to listen to their prayers. And more than that, to actually move and respond in accordance with things that they pray for. That's, that's a pretty significant act of God's providence every time it happens. So we shouldn't gloss over it in this text either. It's interesting that that's even true here when Israel's been enslaved for 40 years. This is not Israel at the height of their um, time and God hearing their prayers. Even in that case, it's significant when it happens with Moses and things like that. But here in a, in a really dry season, someone prays uh, and the Lord listens and he then responds and once again sends his angel to these people. And then those instructions are given again, um, the same instructions we saw earlier, so no need to rehash them right now. Um, And Manoah uh, arose, he goes to his wife, he comes to the man, he asks, uh, are you the man who spoke to her? Uh, The angel says, I am. In verse 12, Manoah says, now when your words come true, what is the child's manner of life and what is his mission? So he's asking, you know, stuff he should already know because she's already been told that his manner of life is a Nazarene and his mission is to save Israel. These, These things are already known he's probably wanting you know more detail like many of us do when we um are curious about things you know we have he has enough information to go off of but he's probably looking for more so he prays and or he now is talking to the angel and he asks him and the angel uh doesn't give any additional details when talking to Manoah he just says the same thing Um, of all that I said to the woman let her be careful so he's he's saying everything that I said earlier true listen to that I want to underscore one point verse 14 Uh, he may not eat of anything that comes from the vine neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. So he's basically saying what I said earlier and what she repeated to you. I'm doubling down on that message that happened earlier. No additional detail, no additional revelation. And then there's this interesting interaction between Manoah and the angel again, when Manoah says, all right, fine. You know, no additional information. At least let us serve a meal to you, you know, to thank you for what you've done or to thank you for this message uh, and feast. Uh, let us detain you, prepare a goat, uh, young goat for you. And the angel says, uh, you can detain me. I'm not going to eat your food. But if you're resolved to, uh, to honor or to praise anyone, go ahead and resolve to honor and praise the God who sent this message to you. Go ahead and sacrifice this to the Lord. So he says, don't serve me a meal. Don't make a, a, a feast. Uh, offer it to the Lord. If you're going to do a burnt offering, do it to the Lord. And you'll notice this, it's it's an editorial choice for the author of Judges to then say, for Manoah did not know that he was an angel of the Lord. Now this is interesting because the judge, the author of Judges has told us thus far that it's an angel of the Lord, but you'll notice when Manoah prays and he prays to God, he refers to God, lowercase l-o-r-d, not by his covenantal name Yahweh. And you'll notice uh, that when Manoah speaks, he speaks to the angel as, a, as a, maybe a mighty being or a powerful being, but he's not referring to him as uh, Yahweh or God or as an angel of the Lord. And at this point, the author of Judges cues us into that and he says, by the way, Manoah did not know that he, the angel, was an angel of the Lord. So Manoah is wanting to honor this person, not really knowing this person's from God, just saying, um, you know, I want to I show honor to this person. The angel then tells him, offer to the Lord. Manoah says then to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So the angel tells him, sacrifice this to Yahweh. And, he, and, the angel, and then Manoah says to him, what is your name? And when your words come true, how may we honor you? What is your name so that when this comes true, we can show honor to you? And the angel of the Lord says to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Seeing that it is wonderful. And you'll notice then when the angel responds to Manoah in this kind of back and forth, it's the same uh, kind of thing that happened earlier, where it's it's a response, the angel saying words, but it's kind of a non-answer to Manoah's question, or like a deflection of the question. And essentially, he doesn't tell him what his name is, um, but he does say that the name is wonderful. And that's interesting for an angel of the Lord to say that his name is wonderful, so he won't show Manoah his name. That's interesting because uh, when a name is described as wonderful, this same word the only time that ever takes place in the book of Psalms and in other places in scripture is when it's referring to the divine name, the name of Yahweh. So the angel here uh, is not answering Manoah's question, but kind of giving every hint possible to both Manoah and to the reader that this is indeed Yahweh, uh, a theophany of God uh, in the form of an angel in the same way that uh, God walked with Abraham and the same way that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. That angel of the Lord we saw earlier in the book of Judges to preach to the people uh, now again here is showing up to Manoah into his wife and so Manoah then takes a young goat takes a grain offering offers it on the rock to Yahweh to the one who works wonders and uh and Manoah and his wife are watching this go down and as this whole sacrifice thing takes place uh, then the angel uh goes uh goes up in a flame on the altar to heaven um and there's a lot of difficulty in understanding what all that's about but the, the key thing is that two different times are told this is a real event. This really happened. It's not like a vision that happened uh, because it says first in the end of verse 19 that Manoah and his wife were watching these things happen. Uh, then we're told what happened. And then we're told uh, at the end of verse 20, now Manoah and his, his wife were watching. Uh, so the two times he's saying this is a, a real thing that was observed, not some vision that occurred, you know, uh, off into the clouds. And they fell on their face to the ground. Um, and then uh, something that's really interesting Uh, that happens is there's these kinds of two different responses from both Manoah and then Manoah's wife um, about how do we put all this together, right? Manoah's response, once it dawns on him what's happened, uh, it says, uh, verse 21, the angel of the Lord appears no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah uh, knew that he was an angel of the Lord. So Manoah, as after all these things have taken place, Manoah finally puts it all together. He finally connects all the dots. And then when it dawns on him that this is an angel of the Lord, he says to his wife, he says, we will surely die for we have seen God. Now, we might be tempted to dismiss Manoah's response uh, as kind of uh, un- unbased and, and kind of strange. Um, but Manoah is drawing from something else in scripture, which is when uh, God tells, uh, tells Moses, you cannot see my face or you will die. And this is something that's well understood by the people that there's a kind of presence of God that can dwell with the people in a tent. There's a kind of presence of God that can be in the pillar of fire or the cloud um, but there's also a kind of presence of God when too much of the presence of God is there, it's it's destructive to the people. And Manoah's scared that they've encountered that level of presence. And so he's saying, surely we will die for we have seen God. So his, his, his fear is founded in some way, although you could probably argue uh, he has fear without any kind of joy for all of the other things that have been said. And his wife balances his statement by saying, uh, but his wife then responds to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering or a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. So his wife is fearful in the same way that Manoah is fearful. She's she's uh, aware of the significance of all that's taken place. But she's also comforted and um, and encouraged and joyful as to the message that was delivered as well. So she's not casually saying oh God visited us no big deal. She's also aware of the significance but she's balancing it with saying if he wanted to kill us why would he have, would he have allowed us to offer a sacrifice in his name? Why would he have announced all these things to us? Why would he have told us about this blessing of salvation that is to come in the future through our child? You know she. so she has arguably the more balanced perspective in this sense because she's, she's putting all the evidence together right? She's putting together both the presence of the angel um, and who the angel is as well as the good news that the angel has delivered. And, uh, and that uh, is something that is kind of the last time we hear from both Manoah. Uh, or the, it's certainly the last time we hear uh, from Manoah's wife. Manoah kind of takes uh, place later again in the text. Um, but in verse 24, we're told all these things kind of were put together by the woman bearing a son, calling his name Samson. And then we're given this summary statement. The young man grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. In Mahan Dan between Zora and Eshetal." So now we can sufficiently ask the question, uh, you know, going through that account together. Why does the author of Judges include this uh, infancy narrative of Samson in this text? Why does Samson break the pattern, and why are we told about his background, his prophecy of his birth, all these all these kinds of things? Why is all that included? Well, I mentioned earlier that that pattern of barrenness is important to pay attention to because when when authors in Scripture write. They're paying attention to the scripture that comes before them when they write, and they're building upon that scripture as they write. And later authors kind of copy that same pattern as they write as well. So, for example, when Moses writes about um, about the barren children uh, or the barren women in the lineage of the seed of promise, um, that is a real thing that actually happened that Moses is recording. But there's a reason under divine uh, inspiration that Moses includes that so explicitly in the text and takes careful time to mention each of those women as the story unfolds. There's a reason that it both happened and Moses includes it. And same with the author of Judges. These things really happened. This woman was really barren and this prophecy really did occur. This is not something that's being made up to kind of fulfill a pattern. So in God's providence, these things do take place. But also in God's providence, the author of these events, who when he sits down to write, decides i'm going to include this series of events because i know that there's a pattern that's coming before me of barren women who are promised children and these children play a very important role in the deliverance and the salvation of god's people right and then later authors when they come around and they read stuff like this they also observe those same patterns in their world as god's still moving in providence and they model those same patterns for example when we're told about Samson, that's the first time that the pattern is given where the barren woman is prophesied a child and this child is to be a deliverer for the people, right? Previously, he's promised their promised children and the children will be the continuation of the lineage. In this case, Samson's not part of Jesus's lineage. We know this because he, he dies without any children. But Samson does essentially inaugurate a certain kind of pattern that we'll see carried on later. In fact, in the book of 1 Samuel, the author of First Samuel is writing and notices this same kind of pattern and he writes about Hannah, the barren woman who prays and who gets a visitation from an angel and the angel answers her prayer and says, you will bear a son, he will be a Nazarite set apart and he will be used to save the people from their current predicament, enslavement to this oppressing people. They're gonna, he's going to uh, in some way bring about the restoration of the Israelites. And that pattern is kind of put on pause for a long period of time. And then you see that same pattern picked up again by the authors of the New Testament when they write about the woman, Elizabeth, who's a barren woman, whose husband is a priest, who is going to be prophesied to have a child, and this child is gonna take part in God moving about and saving his people from their enslavement to an oppressing people. And in all those cases, it happens when the people are least seeking deliverance, when they're least expecting some kind of movement. God is still moving, as it were, to bring about salvation out of nothing. He's creating saviors out of nothing. The last of those people who fits that kind of pattern that we see in Scripture, that really happened as it was, but there's a reason that Luke decides to record those events as they occur and leave them in his gospel. Because he's read the Septuagint, he's read the text at hand, and he's building on the pattern. He wants you to pay attention to when Judges mentions it, and when first Samuel mentions it, because then when he mentions it, you're, you're understanding the significance of all that's being laid out. The other thing that's important is almost all of the gospel writers talk about the infancy narratives of Jesus, and they mention that he too is someone who's born of a womb that could not possibly bear children, right? And in, in some cases, a barren womb. In the case of a Mary, it's a virgin womb. She cannot bear children. It's not biologically possible. And nevertheless, this is going to be the person who's going to save Israel ultimately, and those gospel writers are queuing you into earlier things that have uh, taken place in the text. Now, I say all that to say that when we're asking the question, why does the author of Judges include this? Under divine inspiration, they're editing details in that are going to be important both for their text that they're writing to their audience and under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, details that are going to be important for the broader scope of scripture. Because scripture isn't just a bunch of isolated texts. It's one story but it's told through a bunch of individual accounts and somehow they all weave together and are put together under divine inspiration. And so we, we see that this is included for our benefit um, and for ours to pay attention to, but also to kind of lay a foundation that's gonna be built upon, ultimately culminating in God saving his people, not through an imperfect savior or judge like Samson, but ultimately through a perfect savior who is Christ Jesus. And Christ fulfills the pattern, he fulfills the uh, imagery that's laid out here and he blows it out of the water in every imaginable way, ultimately delivering the people in a substantial way, in a permanent way, and doing so in a way that doesn't leave his reputation tainted at all. He's a perfect savior, a perfect deliverer. But that's all laid forth here by Samson. And so when the author of Judges included Samson, it's important that we we pay attention to all the details in Samson's life, even including this seemingly strange chapter 13 account that advances the story in almost no way, except to tell us that Samson was prophesied to be born and then Samson is born. So that's, uh, I think, uh, why it's included in the text. Uh, Let me just pray, and then we can move on to some discussion over chapter 13 as well. Father, we uh, thank you so much for your word and your uh, beautifully um, written account of all that you've done to save us. Lord, we're reminded of your providence, your um, divine superintendence of all things, covering uh, events and patterns and even the authors who write about those events and those those things taking place. Lord, we give us hearts that are sensitive uh, to pay attention to all of the different pieces uh, that take place in this narrative. Um, help us to reflect on those and, and benefit from them in some way. Um, help us to grow our affection and our heart for you as a result of reading your word as well. Would you grow um, our affection for you? Um, help us to love you more um, in response to your word. We pray all this in your name. Amen.